Welcome to the Legal One podcast brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we're thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is approximately 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get important information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing crucial legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other important stakeholders to positively address the issues in question and know how to get a greater level of understanding of those issues. So let's get started, and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Hello, this is Mike Kelber, the Legal One Coordinator for Online Course Development, and welcome to today's Legal One podcast, New Jersey School Employee Leave Under State and Federal Law. As a leading provider of school law training, the Legal One team of school law experts is pleased to offer this podcast, and it's a podcast like our others that helps you understand complex legal issues. Each podcast is hosted by a Legal One attorney, that today would be me, and or an attorney working in partnership with Legal One. The format includes legal analysis and commentary and interviews with key stakeholders. Our disclaimer, just a reminder, this is a summary of law. This is not meant as legal advice. If you have a question as to how to proceed with a particular course of action, that would be legal advice. You need to consult your own board attorney or your NJPSA attorney or the Schwartz Law Group, and they can give you a direction. We can tell you statutes, codes, case law, all kinds of good information, but if you want to know what to do, then you need to talk to your own attorney. A reminder that you are authorized to use these Legal One materials in the podcast to offer turnkey training within your school district or place of employment, provided you give credit to Legal One for having developed the materials and provide the turnkey training at no charge. Just an overview of what we're going to talk about today, there are a lot of leaves that employees in New Jersey school districts are eligible to take. We're going to talk today about statutory sick leave, about contractual or policy leave that might be part of your collective bargaining agreement or individual contract, federal family leave, state family leave, state disability leave, New Jersey paid family leave, and then at the end of the day, looking at all of the different leaves that are available for people, how do they all fit together? And spoiler alert, they're negotiable. How you fit them together if you're involved in a collective bargaining unit, as many of you are, it's all up to the negotiations between the majority representative, the union, and the board as to how these all interact. So we're going to see that at the end, but you can keep that in mind as we go through. So let's start for, talk first about statutory sick leave, because that's really the beginning of all of this. Sick leaves is defined in New Jersey statute as the absence of an individual from their post or duty because of personal disability due to illness or injury. The individual is sick, him or herself. They've been excluded from school by the school district's medical authorities on account of contagious disease. We saw that during COVID where people were told they had to stay home because they tested positive under COVID. It could be other diseases as well. Or being quarantined for such a disease in 
your immediate household. So if your spouse were sick or your child were sick with COVID, you often were told to stay home and not come to work at that point. This statute has been around for a long time. It predates the 1967 recodification from Title 18 to Title 18A. So it's a longstanding leave, definition of sick leave. But it's sick leave for the individual. That's really the key. Now, how much sick leave do you get and who gets it? Well, interestingly, anybody who's employed in the school district, be it a local, regional, county votech, and they're deemed steadily employed, and we'll give an example of what that means in a minute, or they're protected by tenure, they are allowed sick leave with full pay for a minimum of 10 school days in any school year. Since most school district employees are 10-month employees, particularly teachers, the 10 sick days have come down to one, one day per month on an average. The issue of steadily employed becomes one of interpretation. Now, what the commissioner has said, and actually said in a case back from the 1982 in South Orange Maplewood, that cafeteria workers that worked for two hours a day for five days a week during the school year were deemed steadily employed for purposes of sick leave. They got 10 sick days. Now, their sick day was their two-hour day not a full day that you might otherwise consider, but they were deemed steadily employed. So you don't have to work nine to five. You don't have to work eight to three. As long as there is a steady employment in that particular case, two hours a day on a regular basis, steadily employed, eligible for 10 sick days. Now, what happens if you don't use up all your sick days in a year? You can accumulate them. So under 18A30-3, if you don't use up your time, you get to save it till next year and the year after and the year after that if you don't have to use that. There are circumstances, believe it or not, where sometimes an employer like a board of education may believe that an employee is using sick leave and they're not really sick. And they want to verify the fact that the employee really is sick. Now, 18A30-4 allows for verification of sick leave by the Board of Education and to that can require an employee to provide a physician certificate that they really are sick. Now, the establishment of a sick leave verification policy like that is a managerial prerogative. The procedures, the process, anything dealing with how it gets implemented, all is negotiable. Generally, you'll find them in a collective bargaining agreement. Generally, the common time is if you're absent for three days in a row, then the employee can require a verification of sick leave with a doctor's note, but it varies a little bit from district to district. But the implementation of a sick leave verification policy is a managerial prerogative, but the process, the procedures, how it all works is a matter of negotiations between the majority representative and the union. Now, if you're not a unionized employee, it's a matter of board policy. So that's how that would work. Now, an interesting case that came down in 2019, and we almost had one again this year like this. It might have, might have occurred again, but we, it didn't for all you football Eagles fans out there. Unfortunately, it didn't occur. Appellate division affirmed a perk. That's the Public Employment Relations Commission denying the Board of Education requests to restrain arbitration. Well, what was that about? Well, it seemed that the board had required employees who were absent on February 8th, 2018, the date of the Eagles Super Bowl parade, to submit a doctor's note. Now, I can't imagine that someone would call in sick to go to the Eagles Super Bowl parade if they weren't really sick. 
But that's what the Board of Ed thought was going on. So they said, you need to bring us a doctor's note. And those who didn't bring a doctor's note were denied sick leave. The union and the employees grieved that. It went through the grievance procedure in the contract, which then went towards binding arbitration. And the board went to the Public Employment Relations Commission, PERC, and said, we want arbitration restrained. We don't want this to go to arbitration. This is our right to verify this. And PERC said, no, you can have your sick leave verification policy, but whether or not the employee was improperly denied sick leave, the disciplinary proceedings, the cost of verification, anything in the application of that policy is mandatorily negotiable and arbitrable. We're not going to deny arbitration. So it went to an arbitrator to decide that decision. However, the sick leave policy itself, having one, is a managerial prerogative and the board can do that or not. It was so by statute. But the application of it could be challenged. And that's what happened in the Burlington Township case. Now, we didn't have an Eagle Super Bowl parade this year. So maybe next year, we'll see what happens. Sometimes you wind up with a situation where an employee runs out of sick leave, including the accumulated sick leave, and they still need time off. Well, the statutes do provide for a possibility for the board to do something of that. They can provide extended sick leave. Now, it's extended sick leave on a case-by-case basis for the individual employee, and the board may pay that individual the difference between their salary and the cost of a substitute or the estimated cost of the substitute if one is not hired to fill that role. It is a case-by-case determination. It cannot be a blanket decision-making process. And curious in this statute, which deals only with sick leave, a day's salary is defined as one two hundredth of the annual salary. Now, people use that number a lot in a number of different contexts, but this is only in the area of extended sick leave. Any argument that the legislatures, legislators, I'm sure, didn't look at when they put this together was say, okay, they work 10 months a year, an average of 20 days per month, that's 200 days, one two hundredths of the salary, that'll be a day's pay. However, in reality, in many school districts, the contractual year is not 200 days. It's 185. We know it has to be at least 180. So the numbers don't always match up like that. And we get into discussions about what a day's pay might be in situations other than extended sick leave. It's not necessarily one two hundredth, but it often is talked about in that realm. So bottom line, on a case-by-case basis, the board can award extended sick leave. Beyond that's been accumulated. And what they pay in salary is a differential between the person's actual salary and the cost of the substitute. Boards are authorized to grant sick leave over and above the minimum sick leave, which we said was 10 days. So they could grant 15 days through policy or by collective negotiations. However, if they authorize more sick days per year than the minimum 10, then the most that an employee can accumulate into the next year is 15. They could say, we're going to give you 25 days a year that you can use. Well, that's fine. If you don't use the 25, the amount that you can accumulate for next year is only 15 of those 25. So the maximum accumulated part is 15. So we're now accumulating sick leave. You can also have districts can have sick leave banks. There used to be a lot of different variation in sick leave banks, but then the legislature got involved and essentially created the structure by which sick leave banks were put together in school districts. Now, you don't have to have a sick leave bank. If you do have one, it has to be agreed upon between the board 
and the majority representative or union of the employees of the board that will be covered by the sick leave bank. They administer the sick leave bank. They create the standards and procedures for the operation of the sick leave bank. And they could include a requirement that to get sick leave from the sick leave bank, you have, would have to have donated leave time to the sick leave bank. But it basically gets administered by that six-person panel if you choose to have a sick leave bank in your school district. One of the area, other areas of leaves is workers' comp. For those uninitiated ones, workers' comp occurs when you're, you're absent from your post of duty as a result of a personal injury caused by an accident arising out of and in the course of your employment rather lucrative workers' comp piece for school employees in that you may, the employees will be paid their full salary or wages for the period of absence up to one calendar year without any of the absence being charged to annual sick leave or accumulated sick leave. Whatever payments are made would be reduced by any temporary disability award or any workers' compensation award, but essentially an employee gets their full salary for up to a year without any sick leave time being taken off the rolls for them. Every year we see a case or two where a district has deducted sick leave in a workers' comp case, and they're 99% of the time required to give that leave back. Obviously, in very rare circumstances, does the employee lose any sick time in workers' comp. But it's up to a year's pay for an injury that occurs on the job. If you're on workers' comp leave, that leave time is deemed to be satisfactory service in your employment in the district, even though you're not working, so that there could not be a withholding of increment, there could not be anything with respect to inefficiency or tenure charges. The fact that you're not there at work cannot be viewed negatively. It's deemed satisfactory service during that period of time. Another area in which, very similar to workers' comp, but not quite as lucrative, is that if an employee decides to do a very large humanitarian gesture and donate an organ or bone marrow to someone in need. There's leave protection in that area as well. If they donate one or more of their organs or a part thereof or bone marrow to another human for human organ transplantation, paid leave for up to 30 days for the donation of an organ or part of an organ, five days for the donation of bone marrow, which would, of course, is in addition to any other kinds of leave to which you may be entitled. So you have additional leave in those particular circumstances. And God bless those people who do that because it's just a wonderful humanitarian thing to do. Again, those steadily employed. I neglected to mention that. Again, it's a steadily employed dynamic. We know that that could mean, as we saw in South Orange Maplewood, two hours a day for five days a week. But if you're one of those individuals working in the district, you get this leave if you decide to donate an organ, human organ or bone marrow. Contractually, policy leaves of absence. We've talked about the statutory sick leave and, and items in there. That's not the only leaves of absence that are available to board employees. Sick leave in excess of 10 school days in a school year. Now, I, what I will say is if these are individuals covered by a collective bargaining agreement, if they're not unionized employees and they're not covered by a collective bargaining agreement, the board can do these things by policy. So can you give sick leave in excess of 10 school days a year? Could you give 15 sick days a year? Yes. It's either negotiated with the union or a determination of policy by the board. What do you do for 12-month employees? What do you do for 11-month employees? Do they get 12 days or 11 days in pro rata based on the 10 sick days for the 10 months? Well, the statutes don't say, 
So this becomes a question of negotiations or policy. Most school districts will give 12 sick days to a 12-month employee and 11 to an 11-month employee, which might be a, you know, an elementary principal, let's say, but it's really up to the district and the union in negotiating that. What do you do for employees who work less than full-time or who start after the beginning of the school year? The simple answer is negotiable. And generally what's decided, there's a pro rata assignment of sick time. So if an employee starts on January 1 and they're going to work for six months of the school year and they would normally get 10 sick days, many contracts will say they get six sick days. If they come in on one day in June to work the last month of the year, arguably they'd get one sick day. But it's all a matter of negotiations. Personal leave days. Most contracts provide for three or four personal days a year for the employee. Those are all negotiable. You're not going to find personal leave anywhere in any statute or any regulation. Nothing talks about personal time. It's all purely negotiable. Most contracts, again, will talk about three or four. One of the areas where we're starting to see additional leaves is something called family illness days. Remember, sick leave technically can only be used for the illness of the employee. But there are those times when there's illness in the household you know, your child is sick, maybe an in-law that you take care of is sick and you need to stay home to take care of the ill person. Those are can be family illness days. We're beginning to see those rise up in collective bargaining agreements. There may be two, three, four, five family illness days, not for the illness of the employee, but for illness of others in the family. So that's beginning to become part of many collective bargaining agreements. Maternity and childcare leaves. There used to be, going back 15, 20 years ago, much more extensive language in contracts for maternity and childcare leaves. It was not uncommon for an individual who went out on leave to have the remainder of the year as a maternity leave and then a following year as a childcare leave, not with pay, not with benefits, but just you were able to take that leave and you had a job when you came back. Like I can recall when, all, when our children were born, basically my wife took the rest of the, she was a teacher. She took the rest of that year off for her maternity leave and the following year for a childcare leave. Now keep in mind, that's not counting the sick time that typically comes into play for maternity leaves. The general rule used to be a presumption of disability four weeks before and four weeks after the birth of the baby, where you could use your sick time as an employee for those particular dates. Now it's our daughter just had just recently had a baby and we were talking about it. They're now saying six weeks before and six weeks after for the use of sick time and perhaps longer if it's a cesarean section. So it's a little bit different in that regard, but contractually there may be some extended leaves and some of those are still around in some old contracts. So I call your attention to that as well. And then payment for accumulated sick leave is also an issue that is negotiated, but then the legislature has gotten involved in terms of looking at that in recent years. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit later and how accumulated sick leave could be paid. Essentially in 2007 and 2010, the legislature got involved. Let's talk about accumulated sick leave as well. If you're working in a district and there's now a push towards regionalization of schools again, if your school district dissolves and gets regionalized into a new regional school district, Whatever accumulated sick leave you have in the old district, you get in the new district when you work there. So you get to keep that as it goes forward. If you go from one school district to another, 
you leave where you're working now, you go somewhere else, the new district may, but it doesn't have to, grant either full or partial credit for the unused sick leave you brought in from the other district. What has to happen, however, is it needs to be uniformly applied. Where we see this occur is when superintendents or higher level administrators move from one district to another, they want credit for their unused sick time. If the board grants it to them, they need to grant it to everybody else coming in. So they need to be uniform in the application, which is why sometimes in that movement into the new district, you'll see maybe a, a more clever approach, not just granting unused sick leave, but maybe creating a bank within the district or something like that, because the board may not want to grant credit for all the unused sick leave for people coming into the district for all employees. If you leave one district and go to another, you can ask for a list of how much unused sick leave you have, and the board is required to give that. And once the employer gets that list, they can choose to grant that or not. If they do grant it, it's a, it's a, it cannot be revoked down the road. 18A30-3.6, payment for accumulated sick leave. The most recent legislation, which was passed in 2010, essentially establishes a $15,000 cap on unused sick leave that you've acquired. So if you've accumulated whatever number of days and you're going to retire and now it can only be paid at retirement, not just leaving the district that used to be, that was an ability for some people to do. If you're hired after May 21st, 2010, $15,000 cap only on retirement. There were, was legislation in 2007 that dealt with superintendents, assistant superintendents and BAs but it, that was only for them. So anybody who's been in, working before May 21st, 2010, if you're a principal, supervisor, coordinator, teacher, whatever the sick leave reimbursement process may be from back then, whatever you have, you can have that and it can exceed $15,000. But any new hires cap is $15,000. Now, the reality is most collective bargaining agreements, most individual contracts have had caps that were $15,000 or less anyway. But that's what the new law includes in terms of the cap at 15. There were some enterprising employees who tried to make the argument within the last few years that, well, I, I earned these before 2010, so I should be able to keep them even though the contract changed. And the answer to that was no. If the contract changed and brought you down below 15,000 or whatever the number would be, that's your cap on unused sick leave. Vacation leave. Not too many people get vacation leave. Your 12-month employees may get vacation leave. Some 11-month employees might get vacation leave. Teachers typically don't get vacation leave. But if you do get vacation leave, the most recent legislation says, if you don't use it this year, you can use it next year. But if you don't use it, you lose it. So unless there's a state of emergency, and then it could be longer if that's, if that's necessary. So COVID might have extended that a little bit further. But the general rule of vacation leave is, if you got it this year, you either use it this year or you use it next year or you lose it, unless your collective bargaining agreement had something in there prior to 2010. We're now going to step away from contractual leave and talk about a couple of statutory leaves. This first one being the Federal Family Medical Leave Act, FMLA. And that's important because of the abbreviation. You'll see that. Now, what the federal law, which was adopted in 1993 during Bill Clinton's administration, it allows employees for up to 12 weeks of leave for every 12 months for the birth or adoption or placement of a child. This one's significant. The serious health condition of the employee. 
federal FMLA covers employee leave or the leave of a family member. Now, to be eligible, you have to work for an employer that has 50 or more employees. Most of our school districts do. Some don't. For those that are really small and don't have 50 employees, they're not eligible for federal family leave. You have to have worked for 12 months and you have to have worked 1,250 hours in the previous 12 months. And it covers health conditions of the employee, the spouse, the parent, or the child. What are the benefits? Up to 12 weeks of leave every 12 months. Leave time during the summer does not count for board event employees. Partial weeks do count. So if you're off the three days before Thanksgiving in that shortened week, that's a full week of family leave. The employer may require certification of a serious health condition from your doctor. You can take intermittent leave, like maybe every Friday and Monday with employer approval, as long as there's reasonable efforts to limit disruption. FMLE leaves are generally unpaid. In fact, they are unpaid unless you're counting other leave, paid leave towards that, which gets us to negotiability again. The law does say that the employer can designate other leaves as FMLA leaves, like your sick leave. We're going to count those sick days as FMLA leave towards your 12 weeks. Not in New Jersey. In New Jersey, the whole issue of how that works is negotiable. So notwithstanding what exactly is said in the statute, New Jersey has taken the position, and we'll see a case later on that talks about that, that it's all negotiable, including concurrent use of sick time and federal family leave. If the employer provides health insurance, has to maintain it during the entire leave under the same conditions of the employee had not taken the leave. Interesting twist of this that most people do not know. If you're on federal family leave and you're getting health care, you still have to make the chapter 78 or chapter 44 contributions to health care, even if you are not receiving any compensation from the school district. So you still have to make the contributions that you would have made as an employee if you had been working during that period of time. Once federal family leave expires, you are entitled to an equivalent position, maybe not the same one, but one that has the same benefit salary and other terms and conditions of employment. There are some special rules for instructional employees on return from leave and know that family medical leave generally counts for a 10 year acquisition period. New Jersey set its own family leave act. And that allows for up to 12 weeks of leave for every 24 months for the birth, adoption, or placement of a child or for serious health conditions of a family member. Has a little broader definition of child and parent than the federal leave. It allows people to take 12 weeks in a 24. So what do we have in terms of requirements? You need to work 1,000 hours in the previous 12 months as opposed to federal law, 12 weeks in a 24-month period, and it covers serious health conditions of family members, which includes parent-in-law, sibling, grandparent, any other individual related by blood to the employee, and any other person that the employee shows to have a close association, which is the equivalent of a family relationship. So even broader than blood. And New Jersey Family Leave Act does not cover the employee. That's an important consideration there. So what's the difference is when we compare the Federal Family Medical Leave Act versus the New Jersey Family Leave Act, Keep in mind, both provide job protection and benefits continuation during the period of leave. Leaves are generally unpaid. You have to contribute to your medical benefits contributions during the leave period. And while the stat both statutes indicate that you can count the leave concurrently, in fact, you should count the leave concurrently and the employer may designate certain leaves as family leave, the New Jersey law in terms of negotiations says otherwise. 
So notwithstanding the plain language of both laws, the combination of these are all negotiable. New Jersey temporary disability leave is the next piece we're going to talk about. And essentially, it provides cash benefits to employees who are unable to work due to a physical or mental health condition or other disability related to their work, such as pregnancy, childbirth, recovery, or COVID. It's optional for local governments like school districts, but these employers, school districts, must participate in the state family leave insurance plan or provide a private plan. They could also participate in the temporary disability insurance case, but they must participate in the state family leave. So how does temporary disability leave get funded? Both employers and employees contribute to the New Jersey temporary disability leave insurance. For the employers, in 2022, they contributed between $39.80 and $298.50 on the first $39,800 earned by each employee. For 2023, a little bit more. The cap was $41,100 and was between $41.10 and $308.25. The employees contribute 1,400% on the first $151,900. If that sounds familiar, it's a Social Security contribution cap. And the maximum worker contribution for 2022 is $212.66. There's no temporary disability worker contribution deductions for the 2023 calendar year. That was part of, of last year's budget. So no contributions for 2023. So the employers contribute and the employees contribute. To qualify in 2022, you have to work 20 weeks, earning at least $240 weekly. For 2023, it was 20 weeks of work at $260 weekly. And then you're paid 85% of your average weekly wage up to the maximum weekly benefit, for which in 2022 was $993 a week. Or for 2023, $1,025 per week. Now, we mentioned New Jersey family leave insurance. This provides partial payment to covered employees during the leave to care for seriously ill family members or to bond with a child. New Jersey family leave insurance is not available for the employee, him or herself. It's for bonding with a child or for caring for a seriously ill family member. Now, what it does is provide partial wage replacement for up to 12 consecutive weeks or eight non-continuous weeks, which would be 56 days to care for the newborn or seriously ill family member. The maximum benefits are the same as we saw for temporary disability. For 2022, 85% of the employee's average weekly wage up to $9.93 per week. Or for 2023, 85% of the average wage up to $1,025 per week. Again, take into consideration all the other leave time permitted in the CBA. The family leave program is financed 100% by worker payroll deductions. Employers do not contribute to New Jersey family leave insurance, only the employees. They pay 1,400% on the first $151,900. The maximum contribution for 2022 was $212.66. For 2023, 600% so less on the first $156,800. So the maximum worker contribution for 2023 was $94.08. For the bonding claims, the scope of people who can seek to get reimbursed for bonding claims, it can include the baby's biological parent or the parent's domestic partner or civil union partner, no medical documentation is necessary for bonding claims. For serious health conditions, 
parents, spouse, children of any age, parents-in-law, siblings, grandparents, grandchildren, domestic partners, or other individuals related by blood, or other individuals with whom the employee considers to be family. So a very broad-based family member with a serious health condition. You can require verification on the serious health condition with a healthcare provider if that's necessary. If you're on unemployment, there's also New Jersey Family Leave Insurance Benefits while on unemployment. That is a different program, but it's also available. The last piece I want to talk about today is looking at all of these together and the interaction of the policies. And one of the best cases to look at was a case from Ocean County Votech back in a PERC decision from February 24th of 2022. In this particular case, PERC, the Public Employment Relations Commission, held that the board committed an unfair labor practice when it unilaterally, unilaterally that's a tough word, unilaterally issued a memorandum prohibiting employees from using sick leave for intermittent leave taken under the Family Medical Leave Act and or the New Jersey Family Leave Act. And it unilaterally, keep big word, when you hear that in a labor context, you know there's a problem. It unilaterally implemented a new family leave policy saying sick leave could only be used concurrently with New Jersey Family Leave Act leave, which changed an established past practice without negotiations. Now, we know there's language in those both of those pieces of legislation, federal and state family leave, that says the employer can designate. That's not how it works in New Jersey, though. In New Jersey, it's all negotiable. So the PERC found that all of these issues were mandatorily negotiable in terms of the use of sick leave and how that all would work. What I thought was really good about this particular case, and I call it to your attention, uh, for if you're keeping score at home, it's PERC number 2022-32 from February 24th, 2022. PERC looked at a number of cases that looked at leave time. And just to quickly talk about them, they referenced the Lumberton case from 2002 that said an employer's unilateral requirement that paid leave be used concurrently with FMLA leave was mandatory and negotiable. The FMLA sets minimum family leave benefits, does not eliminate all employer discretion to negotiate with the union for greater benefits. So you can always get more. An employer's requirement to use sick leave as New Jersey family leave was mandatorily negotiable and legally arbitrable. That was a union city case from 2021. The New Jersey family leave regulation that required New Jersey family leave and federal family leave to be used concurrently was not preemptive. The board can negotiate over leave benefits in excess of that provided. It's a Madison Appellate Division case in 2016. And lastly, NJSA 18A colon 30-1 does not statutorily preempt negotiations over a contract provision allowing for the use of sick leave due to family illness. Now, we know the sick leave is only for the sick leave of the individual, but in this particular case, this contract allowed sick days to be used for family illness. In the South Hunterdon decision, Perk held that that was okay, that you could do that through negotiations. So here's the common principle on all of these leaves. When you look at all of them, and we talked about this in the beginning as the spoiler alert, when you look at all the available leaves, the common principle is the use of them, whether it's paid sick leave or any other kind of leave, whether it's FMLA, FLA, TDI, FLI, any of the alphabet soup leaves that are out there, it's all mandatorily negotiable. Sit down with the union to decide how you're going to stack them, how that will work and how it's going to be implemented 
And essentially, that's what you need to do when you look at all these leaves. There are some very lucrative leave policies within the state of New Jersey. New Jersey is one of the leader in employee leaves. So as an employee, it's very important to understand how these all work together. And more importantly, if you're a human resources individual, you really need to know how these fit together because you're going to be administering them. With that, this concludes our presentation on New Jersey school employee leave under state and federal law. Uh, I think we've talked about a lot in terms of school employee leaves in New Jersey. A reminder that you can go to our website at www.njpsa.org slash legal1nj for additional programming opportunities, including more podcasts. Thank you for being part of today's presentation. Look forward to being with you on future Legal One podcasts and presentations. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.